This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials for the benefit of patients with unmet medical needs. We're speaking today with Peter DiBieso, who is a marathon runner, a triathlete, has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, is an American living in Paris, and also has Parkinson's disease. He is a consultant to pharmaceutical companies and has a career in pharmaceuticals in the pharmaceutical industry, having worked at Pfizer, Shire, Vertex, and IQVIA. Hello, Peter. Hello, Steve. Good afternoon from Paris. You have an interesting life with your work in the dynamic global pharmaceutical industry that works to bring treatments to patients with unmet medical needs, including rare diseases, a subject near and dear to my heart. And you also have a disease which is not rare, for which a cure is still being sought. Tell us about Parkinson's disease and how that impacts your life. I know that Parkinson's disease is known for the way it affects movement and that you are also a lifelong athlete. There's a lot of things in your life that are going very well and are wonderful, and in the middle of that comes Parkinson's. How did you come to know that you had Parkinson's, and how has it influenced your life? Yeah, thank you. It was about just, I'd say, a little over five years ago where I was, you know, as an avid athlete, as you've pointed out, um, I was frustrated during my runs that um, I was stiff and I, I couldn't quite relax my right ankle. Uh, that, and I was starting to get a very small kind of hand tremor on my right-hand side. So after um, much recommendations and, and, you know, kind of facing this, I decided to uh, schedule an appointment with a neurologist, which led to several follow-up discussions, which finally led to the performance of a DAT scan, uh, which is another way that they look at uh, indications suggestive of Parkinson's disease. Uh, so at the ripe old age of 49, uh, a little over five years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, so certainly went through all the stages of any kind of news like that and disbelief and frustration. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to say that despite uh, the dire predictions and the fear that I had, um, there's really been, fast forward five years, minimal progression. Um, you know, one of the few things that I'm a strong advocate for in terms of treatment and, you know, universally supported by the medical field is athletics and exercise. So that fit very well with my personal life, and I have a feeling that had something to do with it. Um, but I think to this day, really the only thing that's been an impact is the tremors gotten maybe slightly worse on the right side. Um, still a little bit shuffling, and every now and then I have mild cognitive issues, but I tell you what, I'm going to blame that on aging, not necessarily Parkinson's disease. Um, but again, I've been blessed with um, you know, very little impact and, and feel very strongly about the ability to manage this disease, not having the disease manage me. And have you really been able to keep up with the kind of athletics you were doing before? I know you ran marathons, and you also um, were a triathlete, I believe. You did an Ironman yeah. one time. Yeah. So, I, again, I've been fortunate to kind of retain what I personally love. Um, I'm signed up for the Paris Marathon, which has been uh, rescheduled from this past April uh, to in November. So I'm scheduled to do number 10, marathon number 10 in Paris. So uh, knock on wood, I'll be able to get through that. Um, certainly I've slowed down, but again, I, I think I might attribute that to old age, not necessarily Parkinson's as much as I'd like to. As they say, uh, Parkinson's is, um, ha has a wide variation, but it's something that um, a lot of people have, and they're, um, perhaps the general public would be surprised to know they're continuing on with their life uh, as it was, uh, especially when, um, as you mentioned in your case, it's a slow progression. 
I think people are surprised, and, and you know, it is a lot of folks are uncomfortable. They don't know what the disease really includes, and, and there's definitely when you come and find friends, uh, you know that there's a little bit of awkwardness. They're aware of my situation, um, and I don't think they quite know what to either expect to say. But uh, I think you know, despite that challenge, uh, the diagnosis has not really changed much. And I think once people are comfortable with kind of you know speaking to me about it, I'm certainly you know increasingly comfortable with speaking about the disease and how it's impacted me. Uh, so again, I, I think putting people at ease is, is another good way to kind of adjust and kind of embrace uh, the new world with Parkinson's. I know it's helpful if the person who has something is um, can lead the way by showing friends and the people around them that they can ask about it and talk about it. And um, it, it helps prevent a person who's been diagnosed from being isolated unnecessarily just because other people are afraid to talk about it. Um, and I've, I've enjoyed knowing that for a lot of other reasons in my uh, contact with people in rare disease communities. But my college roommate also has Parkinson's and also onset very young. So, you know, we still sit around and uh, have a beer occasionally and like we always did. And we do the same things and he's doing the same things in life. So it's helped to be able to um, be in contact with him, uh, not only as we did, but about his Parkinson's, too. I think it's just a... Um, that's something newly diagnosed people probably should know. Your wife, uh, Vicki, also works in the pharmaceutical industry, as you do. Uh, so it's interesting that you are both in an industry that uh, reaches out to patients, does research on their behalf. Sometimes that industry itself is misunderstood. But people who are in it also have diseases themselves and things they have to cope with in the family. Uh, would you say your approaches as a family to Parkinson's is different because you know so much about clinical research? Yeah, I've been fortunate to have a great career in the biopharmaceutical industry for over 25 years now. Um, first as representing the sponsor side of the business, more recently representing a CRO. Um, also having my wife who has a similar role in industry has really helped in terms of understanding. And, and I think that the, probably the greatest benefit is our knowledge and the ability to kind of navigate the system um, is quite effective. And again, coming from industry, having a wife and a very supportive partner, um, you know, we often switch hats from our industry role to our patient role, uh, but it really has made a difference. And like I said, our ability to manage the system, um, which also kind of strikes the question of some of the challenges of the general public, uh, not necessarily having that same, but I, I consider myself very fortunate to have both the resources, knowledge, and expertise uh, to really understand how to best treat uh, the conditions and the disease. Yes, we talk a lot about um, in our industry and also on this podcast series about the uh, connection between the clinical trial and the patient and the um, pharmaceutical companies that run those trials, uh, the importance to them of reaching out to patients in uh, friendly language in, that non-professionals will understand so people can find their clinical trials and access the medicines available there. And of course, that helps the company get the clinical trial completed. So. Um, you both have this such a unique perspective. I wonder if you've, you, have you yourself been in clinical trials for Parkinson's? Yeah, again, since the, you know, the onset of diagnosis, I was able to kind of join and find uh, several studies. I think to date, I've probably participated in about six different studies. Um, some of them were interventional. Others were more observation, longitudinal observation studies sponsored by the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, and Included in that is also my wife, who's volunteered uh, for many of the healthy volunteer studies. So uh, I have had the benefit of participating in trials. I've also seen some of the frustrating aspects of trials. Um, in almost all cases, 
um, despite having a very effective and, and a very you know, persuasive physician, um, it was mostly me that raised the opportunity of clinical research as part of uh, participation. Um, so again, I, I think despite the challenge in the education that we see, um, sometimes it really does take the individual to initiate these discussions. So again, that's something that you always hear about, but until I experienced it firsthand, certainly shed a new light uh, really based on exactly my you know, participation in these trials. Well, running a clinical trial can be very hard, and one of the difficulties I know the pharmaceutical professionals have is how to really connect with the patients and understand what they're going through and design and conduct the trial in a way that helps them. What um, was hard uh, about participating in a trial from your perspective as a patient? Yeah, again, I think it was more just the awareness, um, you know, who to call, how to, how to enroll, uh, the ability, availability of certain trials. You know, one example is, you know, found a great trial that I was excited to participate in, um, but yet they required uh, a gene profiling uh, before participation. Um, that's not commonly, you know, covered by insurance. That's not, you know, commonly actually performed by many folks unless, you know, has some very unique opportunities. Um, so while I saw the good of clinical trials, I also saw some of the, the burdens face today. Um, so again, a real life example of, you know, despite uh, having the wherewithal to, to join these studies, in many cases, there's still barriers that's put up to, to kind of challenge the overall recruitment. Yeah, I think that can't be emphasized enough to companies designing clinical trials is that patients, even patients like you who are from the industry, and we've heard this from others in the industry too, um, that they still have trouble getting through to the people who are running the trial, trying to find the patients. And here's a patient trying to find the, the per that person, and then somehow there's still a difficulty in getting connected. So um, that's something the industry needs to keep working on. I know one of the hard parts about running a successful clinical trial is recruitment, and you have spent some of your career working on patient recruitment for clinical trials. Uh, tell us about that. Why is it hard, and what are some of the things that could change to make that more easy? Yeah, it's kind of the bitter irony that my entire career has been focused on, you know, looking at patient recruitment and some of the challenges that in that's included with that, both at the sponsor and the CRO um, side of industry. Um, and despite our best efforts, I think the industry is still very much challenged by recruitment, although it's getting better. Um, you know, I think we break it down in terms of the role of investigative sites as well as investigators are critical. Uh, we've seen that just recently with the incidents of the COVID crisis, um, you know, at the height of it back in March, you know, almost 75% of all investigative sites were unable to actually see patients, which effectively brought research to a grinding halt. So, Really, the role of the sites um, can't be emphasized enough. Uh, that being said, the role of the sponsor is equally important. You touched on it earlier, but you know I think their obligation is to actually design studies that are clinically relevant and that can actually fit into people's lives. Um, so rather than you know actually focusing on just the academic or clinical elements of the protocol, actually focusing on the real-world elements of a protocol. How does this really fit with someone's daily life? You know, will they be able to kind of join for the visits? Are they, you know, do they have something as simple as parking at the investigative site so they can, you know, get into the office? Um, so again, I, I think this all leads up to what I think many folks are referring to as patient centricity, um, which is really putting the patient in the middle of, of, of the clinical research enterprise. And I think we're starting to see the benefit of that. You know, that was once a rare approach. I think we're seeing it now much more commonplace. Um, so again, I think the sponsor's I've really embraced working with patients and patient groups. 
um, but there's still many challenges to be had. Yes, the patients are um, uh, have long been tired of all the time they have to spend in waiting rooms, for example, when they go in for one of their clinical trial visits. They may have to be seen by a doctor and then wait for some, some uh, a scan or a test and then go back to another doctor. And a lot of the day is spent in the waiting room, some patients report. And then with COVID, we've heard reports that patients go in with their caregiver and find out, well, the caregiver can't go into the hospital now because they only let in required people. Plus, there's nowhere else to go while they wait for hours for the patient to come out because at least there was a time when Starbucks were closed and other things. Um, some of that's loosening up. But this is all the kind of thing that um, sponsors, if they can get ahead of that and communicate, they could warn people about what to expect and uh, smooth the path. And you mentioned work. I mean, there are a lot of people who can't get off of work to go into those visits. But if trials are designed so people can go to them in off hours, then we could start having people with um, hourly working schedules, daily hour bus drivers and so forth, coming in to clinical trials, which will help us with diversity and inclusion. Um, one of the kinds of organizations that helps patients and helps the sponsors too are the patient advocacy groups. Um, can you talk about patient advocacy groups as a form of support for you? Sure, both actually my wife and I, you know, almost immediately after diagnosis, you know, like a lot of people just searched as far and wide as we could in terms of information. Uh, and certainly the, the greatest common kind of finding was Michael J. Fox Foundation has just really led the charge in terms of spurring research. So we were very fortunate at the outset to get involved with Michael J. Fox. Um, started off with a number of opportunities with Team Fox, um, which was raising funds through everything from New York City Marathon to climbing mountains, as we talked about earlier. Um, but soon thereafter learned there's so much more that the Fox Foundation does, uh, including legislative advocacy. Uh, so I was also selected as a legislative advocate where once a year, we all go up to the Hill um, and really speak with Congress, um, whether that's securing funding, uh, providing a level of awareness of the disease, looking at other challenges. Um, so advocacy, awareness. Um, we've even been involved with looking at uh, what Fox uses called the Fox Trial Finder, which is actually a tool used by Fox um, in conjunction with others that actually helps retract patients and healthy volunteers and makes, makes it much easier to navigate those opportunities that we talked about earlier. Um, so it really is a, a multidisciplinary effort, and the Fox Foundation, I think, has really been great leaders in the industry, and there's plenty more as well. Yes, the Michael J. Fox Foundation has an astounding and wonderful array of things they offer patients um, locally and nationally and so forth and um, internationally that um, just address so many of the different kinds of needs of patients, all the way from, like you said, talking to legislators in the Hill about what lawmakers could do to help the situation, and just families at home wondering, well, how do I support um, the family now that we have um, this to deal with, especially newer families who are going to benefit from that. Um, what about the legislative advocacy? What are some of the things that um, legislators can do? Yeah, I think certainly everyone always goes to funding. So funding the NIH and a lot of this, the academic and research work that goes out of that organization is absolutely critical. Um, but there's other efforts as well. I think despite all that we're learning and starting to know about Parkinson's, there still isn't a definitive registry to actually accurately determine di diagnosis of the, excuse me, of the population. Um, so despite all the efforts that we've had, we still don't know how many patients are truly diagnosed with Parkinson's. Um, so again, those are just a few small examples of 
the role of Congress along with the advocacy of, of other organizations and groups. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's very important to so build awareness that way and that there's an opportunity, but somebody has to do something about those things. Um, and you mentioned um, Fox Trial Finder. Uh, I know they use uh, CenterWatch iConnect increasingly for that, uh, which is a, a very easy way to find clinical trials for whatever disease you have. And um, that's one of the biggest complaints I hear from um, patients about clinical trials is the difficulty in finding them as you originally um, talked about. So this is an online tool that uh, Michael J. Fox Foundation is using very effectively. What about, um, tell us, we have just a minute or so left, what is it like to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? <laughs> uh, it was pretty incredible. I have to say that uh, it was something that my wife and I tackled together and, uh, you know, at 19,000 plus feet, um, it was quite an experience. And we actually, uh, there was a team of six of us uh, and two of us actually had Parkinson's, so it was both an emotional and, and kind of physical, uh, you know, physical exhilaration in terms of what we did. But uh, very happy to have done it, very happy to have finished it, and very happy to probably not do it again. Um, but no, <laughs> it's just, it just an absolutely rewarding experience. And you know, more importantly, we raised uh, significant funds, including my my family helped to the the true team effort in raising those funds. And it's awfully nice when you know that those are going directly towards something that will impact all of our lives. Um, so I, I feel that I'm blessed and it's been very fortunate to have the support of others. How long does that take to climb the mountain? It took about eight days, uh, six days to go up, two days to come down. So most of it, you know, thankfully it wasn't a, a significant physical challenge, at least in terms of the technical aspects of climbing. You know, there wasn't ropes and all that, but um, it was, in terms of altitude, probably the, the greatest challenge of, of actually making it up and down Kilimanjaro. Um, but, of course, we finished with a nice safari afterwards, so we're, uh, again, uh, very lucky in actually having a little fun as well as uh, doing some good. Well, those, that sounds like really good times. And um, I'm sorry that we're out of time right now, Peter, but thank you so much for talking us to us about all of this, uh, your wonderful life, uh, the role of Parkinson's in it, and uh, um, your wonderful family. Well, thank you very much. And uh, my closing word is just everybody can have a role and everybody should learn how to participate. Uh, it's not limited to patients diagnosed with a disease. It's something all of us can do. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thanks, Peter. We've been speaking today with Peter DiBiaso, a pharmaceutical industry professional, an athlete, and a person living with Parkinson's disease. This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. Special thanks to our executive producer, Lauren Osmore, and production team, Isabel Andresen, Roxana Gilford-Blake, and technical director, David Fogel, and head of studio, Amy Hutnick. Goodbye, everybody.